Peace be with you and also with you. Amen. Uh, my name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills, and uh, we are talking about peace this morning. Um, I don't know if it strikes anyone else as ironic that we're celebrating peace uh, this morning, not just in light of the current news cycle, the impeachment hearings, North Korea threatening to send us presents, gifts, um, but just how, how about the, the Christmas season in general? Um, certainly, I think of, of the four traditional Advent themes that we discuss this time of year uh, and that we're examining specifically in our, our series, Tis the Season, peace has got to be the most debatable, doesn't it? I mean, sure, tis the season for hope. We remember with hopeful anticipation the birth of our coming Savior, Jesus. Tis the season for joy. You know, even the secular world uh, recognizes that it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all. Even the Scrooges out there can't argue with a couple weeks off work and presents under the tree. Christmas is a time of joy, and most of all, Christmas is a time of love. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And that all started, Jesus laying down his life all started with his loving choice to lay down his perfect life in heaven to come be with us, God with us, Emmanuel, on that blessed Christmas day 2,000 years ago. So Christmas is all about love. But peace, I mean, be honest, if, who here, if we played a game of word association and I said the word Christmas, the first thing that comes to mind for you is peace. You know, I, I don't know about y'all, I checked our family calendar um, in preparation for this uh, sermon. We literally have something scheduled 11 of the 14 days, uh, or evenings, I mean, I work during the day, but 11 of the 14 evenings, we're out of the house uh, doing things leading up to Christmas. It's fun, it's lots of fun, lots of joy, but peace? I don't know. Some of us would kill for just a little peace, wouldn't we? John MacArthur quips that people talk about trying to find peace and quiet or trying to make peace or law enforcement trying to keep the peace, global arbitrators trying to establish peace, all in vain until we finally rest in peace. Uh, we stress ourselves out in pursuit of peace, and peace still seems to elude us. Uh, as the video explained just a moment ago, true peace Biblical peace isn't just the absence of war and hostility, as Webster defines it. Scripture's bar is set much higher than that. Shalom means wholeness. It means completeness. Things are right. Things are just as they should be. And indeed, this concept of shalom is such a dominant theme in the Bible that we could really use it to tell the entire story of Scripture. See, for all of its complexities and tough texts, the Bible is really just a story. It is God's story told in five chapters. And we might title them, chapter one, Shalom created, chapter two, Shalom destroyed, chapter three, Shalom recovered, chapter four, Shalom perfected, and chapter five, Shalom secured. And because the Bible is not just God's story, it is our story as well, each of us has four basic relationships that define our life. There's your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, your relationship to the world, and most importantly, your relationship with God, self, others, world, God. And 
We're going to study the book of Genesis together in 2020, uh, but let's just briefly examine how each of those four relationships is depicted in the opening chapters of the human story as chapters one through five unfold. Chapter one, in the beginning, God created. He, He created orderly, intentionally, completely, things just as they should be in the garden. Shalom. God says it was good. Tob, the Hebrew word. And on the sixth day, his culminating masterpiece, humanity is meod tob, very good. And shalom characterized all four of our relationships. Our relationship with self. We hear the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Oh, to get back there, right? That's the most beautiful verse in the Bible. That is shalom, naked and unashamed. That's what we're all after, to be fully known, to be laid bare before the world, and yet no shame, nothing to hide, fully loved, fully accepted. How about our our relationship with one another? We hear uh, in chapter two, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Perfect unity, two halves that complete one another, wholeness, shalom. That describe anyone else's marriage? Perfect unity, two become one. That's that's what what we're after, what we want to get back to. Relationship to the world. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the earth. They have dominion. The created order answers to them. There is order, shalom. And finally, relationship with God. We hear the Lord God was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. Picture that. God used to just come down, take strolls through this perfect garden with Adam and Eve. That is peace. Could life get any better? But in just one verse, in one decision, one bite, all that shalom came crashing down around them. Chapter 3, verse 6, we hear the woman took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They disobeyed broke God's one rule, and thus opens chapter two, shalom destroyed. And we hear relationship with self, then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, hiding, shame, guilt, fear, insecurity, enter the world. Relationship with others, what happens to this perfect, harmonious, two become one union between Adam and Eve as soon as sin enters the picture? Verses 12 and 13 of chapter, two, uh, chapter 3, the man said, the woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Finger pointing, blame shifting, division, resentment. Verse 16, we hear a woman's desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Conflict, animosity. This is the birth of both feminist discontentment and masculine chauvinism. Genesis 3.16. What about the world, the relationship to the world? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now instead of working for Adam, the created order is pitted against him. Man versus wild. Naked and afraid. All the best you know, survival shows on TV, all based on Genesis 3. And finally, most tragically, the loss of shalom with God. We hear verse 23, the saddest verse in the Bible. The Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden. 
shalom lost. But not forever. Because in chapter 3 of God's story, Genesis 12, through the rest of the Old Testament, we hear about shalom recovered. God is raising up a remnant of faithful followers, Noah, and Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, through whom he will bless and ultimately rescue all nations. And God promised this mission to restore shalom to all the world would climax in chapter 4 with his sending of a Messiah, literally a chosen one, the one who would one day right every wrong, straighten every crooked path. He would be called the Prince of Shalom. And he would restore Shalom to all four of our relationships. Through him, our, our self-relationship, we hear a once ashamed people would now have no condemnation, no shame. A once enslaved people would be set free from the bondage to sin. No more shackles. In our relationship with others, we hear through him, you who were once far off would be brought near by the blood of the chosen one, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both. Now in context, in Ephesians 2, Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, what had formerly served as the central dividing line in, in the Jewish worldview between all of humanity, insider versus outsider, clean versus corrupt, chosen by God versus estranged from God. Now, the Messiah has made us both one, Paul says. So making peace. You and I, it's hard for you and I to, to understand the impact of that kind of interpersonal reconciliation that Jesus made possible only because we can't fully understand the tensions that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century Jewish perspective. But if this Messiah can reconcile Jew and Gentile, he can restore shalom to any interpersonal relationship. We hear there's now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male and female, for you are all now one. What about our relationship to the world? We hear this Messiah would restore shalom not just to humanity, but to the whole world. Romans 8.21, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Because, Colossians 1, for in him, this Messiah, all the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to him all things, not just all people, all things, all creation, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, how? Reconciled how? By the blood of of his cross, Colossians 1.20, which leads to our fourth and most important relationship, our relationship with God. This promised Messiah would reconcile us to God, making peace between us and God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, there was hostility, a, a total lack of peace and shalom that characterized not only our interpersonal relationships with one another, Jew and Gentile, male and female, Adam and Eve, but more importantly, between a perfect, holy God and a sinful, fallen humanity, hostility. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is against sin. Romans 8 says the, the, the selfish mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So there was hostility in both directions. In our sin, we hated God, and God hated our sin. And yet, verse 17, we hear the Messiah came and preached peace. For through him, we now have access in one spirit to the Father. Reconciliation. Relationship with God repaired. Shalom with God restored. 
Romans 5.1 says, we now have peace with God. Through whom? Who could, make, who could make all this possible? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I've got two main points for you this morning, friends. And that's the first one. Last week we observed from Romans 15.13 that we have hope in Christ. This week our, our first central truth is that we have peace through Christ. Let me go ahead and give you the second main takeaway while we're at it. Number one, we have peace through Christ. Number two, we experience peace from the Holy Spirit. Number one, we have peace through Christ. Number two, we experience peace from the Holy Spirit. MacArthur calls this the objective versus the subjective dimensions of peace. We have objective, unchanging peace with God through Christ's atoning, reconciling death on the cross. If you have truly, this morning, repented and trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you now have eternal peace with God. It is an objective reality in your life. Nothing can change it. Whether you feel that way or not, you'll have good days and bad days in your faith. Nothing will change it because you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose the peace with God that is yours through Christ Jesus, your Lord. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. We have eternal security, eternal hope, and peace with God the Father through Jesus. And yet, some of you are sitting here thinking, wondering, then why don't I feel a lot of peace in my life? And the answer is because we experience peace subjectively from the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus makes a staggering statement in verse 27 of our passage for this morning from John chapter 14. He's going to say, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus says, stop worrying. Stop fearing, stop being stressed out and anxious. Friends, did you know that anxiety is a sin? Philippians 4, 6 plainly says, do not be anxious about anything. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reading God's word. Don't be anxious. We have a lot of sympathy these days for those who suffer from anxiety. We diagnose it as an official emotional disorder. And listen, I'm not standing up here and saying that medication and therapy don't have their place within God's common grace gifts of healing for his people, but God's word prescribes for us the ultimate cure. 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. 1 Peter 5.7, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the ultimate cure. No medication will get you that. God wants for worry and fear and stress and anxiety to be no part of your day-to-day existence. He loves you too much for that. God wants a life of perfect peace for you. Do you believe that? God wants a life of shalom for you. And in John 14, 27, Jesus makes the radical claim that he can actually accomplish it for you and in you. But for Jesus to say that, to tell us to stop worrying, stop sinning in your anxiety without actually giving us the necessary power over worry and fear would amount to emotional abuse. 
It would be like me commanding my three-year-old daughter to go change the transmission in my car. She does not have the power to do that. She, she doesn't have the tools or the skills to do that in her own strength. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, I love you so much that I don't want fear and anxiety, worry, to play any part in your life, but because in your sin, you're so broken, left on your own, you cannot help but experience total, constant anxiety and stress, worry. So here's what I'm gonna do for you. I'm going to give you my peace, not just any peace, my peace, Jesus's peace, the Prince of Peace's peace, supernatural peace. I'm gonna give it to you. Friends, do you wanna feel that kind of peace in your life? Do you wanna experience a life free of worry and fear and anxiety? Do you believe it's possible? If you wanna experience it, and let's find out how we get it. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word? From John chapter 14, we'll start in verse 15. I'll actually just go through verse 27. I trimmed a little bit of this for time. John 14, 15 to 27. It's on the screen in front of you. I'll read from the ESV here. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live." In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to unpack, exposit, interpret, seek to apply your word in our lives, in our hearts, God, I pray that even as you use the Holy Spirit to inspire the writing of these words, the remembering of these words 2,000 years ago, to inspire Jesus to say these words, I pray, God, that you would now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, illuminate 
our minds and our hearts to hear them, to receive them in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to you and edifying to us in a way that would allow you to touch hearts, change hearts this morning by your supernatural peace. God, we come here this morning from all sorts of different uh, context. We've had different weeks this week. God, I, I pray that in your sovereignty, this message would hit someone right where they are at exactly the right time when they need a lot of peace. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see this morning that you don't offer peace the way the world does. You offer us yourself, your peace. And God, I pray that you might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, increase our peace this morning. For your glory, for our benefit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so this is my understanding from John 14 of how this, I'm going to call it the peace pipeline. It's trademarked. Uh, Will Duvall, peace pipeline. Here's how it works. I'll give you an orientation to the, the peace pipeline flowchart you find in your bulletins there. So here, here, here's the Cliff's notes. We experience peace from the Holy Spirit, verse 27, who was sent by Jesus, verse 16, who was sent by God the Father, verse 24, or to trace it in the other direction and, and to pull in some other scripture to, to try and support this for you. God the Father describes himself over and over and over again in his word as the God of peace. Romans 15, 33, 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. You see the rest of the references up there. The God of all peace. We hear in Judges 6, 24, that the Lord is peace. Not just peaceful, God is peace. He is the very essence of peace. God's nature and character set the standard for and give definition to the very concept of peace. James 1.17 says, every good gift is from above coming down from the Father, peace included. And so peace originates with God the Father. He is the source of all peace. But peace finds its greatest incarnation, its embodied fulfillment in the person of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Just as an aside for a moment, can you imagine what it must have been like to hang out with Jesus? I mean, no wonder he drew such crowds. Forget about the miracles for a second. We all know people who are high stress, right? Some of y'all are getting nervous. You're feeling like maybe I'm going to call you out. It's just people who are high stress. No peace at all. Just constantly kind of freaking out. If you can't think of someone, you're the person. That's why you can't think of them. And that's why everybody avoids you, because you stress them out all the time with your stress. Now imagine the opposite of that. Perfect peace. That's Jesus. I'm not talking about some half-baked uh, Bob Marley-esque stoner. That's not true peace. I'm not talking about some detached-from-all-reality uh, Buddhist conception of nirvana, enlightenment. This notion that the way to peace is through disassociating from the world. That, that this physical, material world is bad, and so you've got to achieve spiritual transcendence. Mind over matter, rise above it. Jesus did the opposite 
of that. He took on a physical body, condescended and entered into the physical world, died a physical death in our place on the cross, resurrected bodily, all to prove that God actually cares about the physical world. Our God doesn't just shout down orders from heaven, try harder for peace, meditate more. God entered into the thick of it, the very worst that this world could throw at a person in order to bring us true peace. But then he told his disciples, the ones who had given up everything to follow him, to be with him, to vicariously experience his peace, he said, hey, I'm about to die. But don't worry. It's actually better that I leave you. Now, if you're a disciple in that moment hearing that, of all the crazy things that Jesus said, that's got to be the craziest. Imagine him trying to convince you that it's better It's to your advantage that I go away, he says, for I do not go away, the helper, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You've got to be thinking to yourself, what Jesus could be better than living with you, walking side by side with you every single day? And Jesus' answer is, having me live in you. The God of all peace sent the Prince of Peace to bring us objective peace through his atoning, reconciling, shalom-restoring death on the cross. But then, as if that weren't all enough, Jesus, as a parting gift, leaves us with his peace in the form of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives in us, Romans 15, 13, we hear in order to fill us with all peace such that we can actually experience subjectively the peace of Christ for ourselves. Friends, this is the astounding gospel good news. But we still haven't quite fully resolved one all-important question. If those of us who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and have thus been given access through the Holy Spirit to peace, Christ's peace, perfect peace that comes ultimately from God the Father, the source of all peace, then why do most of us, dare I say all of us in here, still experience worries, stress, fear, anxiety? Does that mean that we're not truly saved? Or perhaps asked more positively, Jesus, how can I experience even more of the peace that you promised you've left for me? That's the answer, the the question we want to answer in our last 10, 15 minutes together. And Jesus' clear answer in John chapter 14 is that you and I will experience subjectively, we will feel the perfect supernatural peace of God from Christ through the Holy Spirit to the extent that we live according to the Spirit by walking in love for God and obedience to his word. Friends, that's what it means to live by the Spirit. It simply means to love and obey God. 
I think that sometimes we Baptists get a little antsy. You know, when we hear folks talk about being moved by the Spirit, we envision the Pentecostals across the highway convulsing in the aisles and handling snakes or something. Do you know what it actually means biblically to live by the Spirit? It means to have your affections stirred for God in such a way that you are motivated out of love to walk in step with his word more faithfully in your daily life. That's it. Jesus says that much over and over and over again in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. Just look at it back with me. He says in verse 15, if you love me, this is how he starts, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or phrased negatively in verse 24, whoever does not love me and does not keep my words, uh, sorry, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. I elaborated on this uh, in our podcast episode from this past week. So just quick shout out for the the podcast, subscribe to it, like it, listen to it. Uh, but, But Destiny, one of our college students had asked a great question about which is more important, to love God or to obey God? And the answer is simple, love. But the reason, one of the reasons anyways, that that is the answer to the question is because God knows if we truly love him, we will necessarily obey him. Necessarily obey him. You, you can obey without loving. It can, it can go the one way without going the other way. So you can obey without loving. Plenty of religions out there prescribe that. Here's a long list of to-dos for you to follow, and maybe if you're obedient enough, God will eventually want a relationship with you. But that's not Christianity. Christianity says, if you wait until you're good enough, you will never come to Jesus because he's perfect. Christianity says he loves you enough to choose you, call you, rescue you right where you're at, and he loves you too much to leave you there. And so the conditional if-then statement with Christianity has to run in the opposite direction. It's not, obey me, obey me, obey me, and maybe eventually we'll fall in love. It's, if you love me, you will obey me. We've got to love and be loved by Jesus. 1 John 4, 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. So he loves us, then we love him, then our obedience comes from a pure heart, not a misguided attempt to self-justify or self-atone for our sins through our obedience. But don't miss the weight of the absolute statement that Jesus makes here three times in three different ways in John 14. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, period. Not you know, when you feel like it. It's not a subjective thing. There's no room in Christianity for antinomianism. Anti against nomos, the law. Antinomianism is the heresy that Jesus came to do away with the law. No more commandments. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And Jesus would not tell us here in verse 21 that we prove our love for him by keeping his commandments 
if there were no commandments to keep. So how did Jesus summarize the commandments, the 613 laws of the Old Testament that he came to fulfill? That's what Thad unpacked for us in his sermon a few weeks ago in our study through Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12. Jesus answered, the most important commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so we prove our love for God by obeying his commandments. And his commandment is what? That we love him. Love and obedience. Two sides of the same coin. Jesus says, if you love, you will obey. See, Ellery, my daughter, can tell me that she loves me, but we'll know for sure when I ask her to make her bed. She melt down in a pile on the floor, or she joyfully go do it. Jesus continues in verse 16, if you do love me, and therefore you necessarily keep my commandments, then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So the Holy Spirit is not just the Spirit of peace, he's the Spirit of truth as well. Jesus will say uh, later in chapter 16, verse 8, when the helper comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 13 of chapter 16, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So here are two additional benefits of roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our life. Conviction of sin and guidance in righteousness. Are you starting to see the connection here between peace and obedience, peace and righteousness? Nothing will cause you, nothing ought to cause you more sleepless nights, more lack of peace in your life than a guilty conscience. You want peace? Allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and to lead you to repentance and renewed obedience to the Lord. That is peace. Verse 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more because I'm going to die physically, but you will see me because I'm going to be raised to new life spiritually, and only those who have been given the spiritual eyes of faith will be able to see. That's why not everyone became a Christian after Jesus' resurrection. It's like Judy the Elf, uh, so poignantly put in the Santa Claus movie that we watched here on Friday night. Adults think that seeing is believing, but kids can see Santa because they know believing is seeing. That's why Jesus says you've got to have faith like a child in order to enter the kingdom. The difference, of course, between resurrected Jesus and Santa is that one of them is real. The end of verse 18, not only will you see me, Jesus says, but because I live, you also will live. He's not just the spirit of peace. He's not just the spirit of truth. It's the Holy Spirit of power as well. The same Holy Spirit power that raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise you and I to new life in Christ as well if, Ephesians 1.13, we have been sealed with the Spirit through faith in Christ. Jesus says in verse 20, continuing our way through John 14, in that day, 
the day of your salvation, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. What a beautiful promise. Jesus effectively just invited us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit into a bond of love and unity that he himself shares with God the Father and the Spirit, the Trinity. And Jesus will say in the very next chapter, John 15, abide in me. He says, abide in me. I want to stay in this relationship of love with you that I've made possible for you. Abide in me. Seven times he says it. Verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And how do we abide in God's love? Verse 10 of John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love and obedience, two sides of the same coin. And collectively, they answer that question of how do I experience more peace? You want to experience God's peace in your life? Live according to the Spirit in love and obedience more peace, and more joy, by the way, too. Uh, we get a bonus fruit of the Spirit here. In John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be f- made full. Perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect hope, love, all of it. And we'll cover joy next week. But here's what I want to leave us with this morning. We have marveled at the fact that we can now have peace, objective, unchanging peace, no matter how we feel, with God through Christ. And number two, we've explored what it means for Jesus to promise that we can actually experience peace subjectively in the here and now, supernatural peace from the Holy Spirit that actually has the power to keep our hearts from being troubled and afraid. And by the way, let's just quickly note the context here. This is the last sermon ever preached by a guy who's about to go get hung on a cross and he's, he's talking all about peace. He's preaching to a bunch of guys who are about to go get beheaded and beaten to death and ripped to shred by lions in the Roman Colosseum all for preaching peace in a hostile world. They will die in agony, the disciples, but rest in peace, all for their desire to share the peace of Christ, the reconciliation with God that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood on the cross. And you and I will experience subjectively Jesus' peace to the degree that we live according to the Spirit in love and obedience. And I'm going to trust that you all can fill in some of the practical application points as you leave here today in your own life. I don't know what it might be for you. I mean, just ask yourself as you leave here today, where am I not currently experiencing God's perfect peace in my life? And then ask, how might I be failing to love and obey God in that area of my life? For some of you, maybe it's your marriage. You're not experiencing peace in your marriages because you're not obeying God's perfect design for marriage, Ephesians 5. Wives, you don't have peace because you're not submitting to your husbands. 
Husbands, you don't have peace because you're not sacrificially loving your wives as Christ loves the church. Maybe you're not experiencing peace at your job because you're not submitting to your boss. Ephesians 5, obey your masters. Or you've turned work into an idol and you look to it to give you the identity, the worth, and the peace that can only be found in Christ. There's any number of possible application points in your life this week for where you might just need to ask that question, where, where am I experiencing a lack of shalom, of wholeness, of completeness, of peace? How can I love and obey God more in that area of my life? But if you get nothing else from this message, friends, please hear this, okay? If you want to obey the command of God, obedience, in order to get peace, if you want to obey the command of God, do you know where that starts? You know, the the very first command that you've got to obey before you can obey anything else, before you have any hope of ever loving God or loving neighbor, it starts with 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. His command is that we believe that we trust, we put our hope and our faith in him. And if you have not yet done that, if you have not yet trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, don't be surprised if you're not experiencing a lot of peace in your life right now. But conversely, the promise, put positively, the promise of Jesus for you this morning, friends, As he says, peace, I leave you. My peace, I will give you. I want to give you this morning. Not as the world gives to you do I give. The best the world can offer is a temporary ceasefire while both sides reload. Jesus says, I died to give you perfect peace. So you can now actually let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You can actually live a life free of worry and fear and stress. But you only get his peace by trusting in him. Will you trust in him this morning? Let's pray.